0: Hello again, this is Pastor Ed Collins with North Christian Church. This is part 78 of The Lord is Our Confidence. I hope you're all doing well. Let's bow our heads and open up in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together this way, this unique way, Father, in this unique time. Your faithfulness is overwhelming. You've never let us go. You've never departed from us, Father. Your promises are real, they're true. You prove it to us each and every day. These are these messages even are proof of your grace and your love for us, Father. We're just so grateful for all that you do for us. May we never become familiar with it. We pray for those in the congregation, Father, that are ill, that are suffering and in need of comfort, Father. Our prayers go out to them. We ask that you heal them, that your will be done, of course, Father, but that you comfort them and that maybe the comfort you give us overflows into the laps of of their, of others and that they might be comforted uh, through us somehow as vessels of mercy even. <clears throat> we pray also, Father, for those in the world that are still lost, that are without hope, that they be humbled and receive saving faith so that we might have additional brothers and sisters for all of eternity in Christ Jesus we are most grateful and thankful of course for your son's work on the cross our lord and savior we do just ask for your blessings on this message may it be edifying for our souls we ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name by the power of the spirit we do pray amen Again, this is part 78 of The Lord is Our Confidence. You know, it's funny because I thought for a moment that Thursday's message was going to be the last in this series. I thought he just sort of was going to call it quits right there. But here we are, my friends. Uh, it goes to show how little control I have, even as a shepherd um, the lord must really desire this is what i'll say the lord must really desire for us to share in his portion or a portion of his own confidence i would say so let's dig in and find our way back to where we were last time as we like to say we live in some interesting times don't we we might call them seasons even, to borrow from the Bible. Go to Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1, a lot of people saying, you know, tongue-in-cheek, we live in some interesting times, don't we? And to borrow from the Bible, we might call them seasons even. Ecclesiastes 3, 1, Solomon had something to say about seasons, about times and seasons, about perspective on such things. Ecclesiastes three one. For everything, there is a season. Just stop for a moment. Dwell on that. For everything, there is a season. The implication there is that God has ordained not just everything, but everything occurs at a time that he has also ordained. These things are never out of sync with one another. So you have to think big picture again. You have to think about how God's in control. For everything, there is a season. And a time for every matter under heaven. Up here on the board, for everything, there is a season. The Bible teaches us to think about life from God's perspective. That's one of the things that the Spirit's been doing from this pulpit for years. That big picture perspective, that perspective That God gives us in the Holy Bible. So the Bible teaches us to think about life from God's perspective. That is, that He is in control. And the implication is that we are not. God already knows the end from the beginning. As Solomon is saying in a nutshell, what will be, will be. Again, for everything, there is a season. The Bible teaches us to think about life from God's perspective. That is, that He is in control implying we are not. God already knows the end from the beginning. What will be, will be. It's difficult to describe what Solomon wrote here. He was a student of life and people. But at the risk of waxing philosophical, I give you that point on the board. Again, the Bible teaches us to think about life from God's perspective God already knows the end from the beginning. What will be, will be. Look at verse 1 again. Ecclesiastes 3. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born. A time to die. A time to plant. A time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh a time to mourn and a time to dance a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing a time to seek and a time to lose a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow a time to keep silence and a time to speak and then finally a time to love and a time to hate A time for war and a time for peace. Now, as we noted last time, there's a time and season even to preach the Word of God. And more generically, to stand up for the truth. Well, are you ready for this? In this case, standing up for the truth, the seasons do not matter. Again, There are seasons, there's a time and season for everything. We just read this in Ecclesiastes 3.1. But with the case of standing up for the truth, seasons do not matter, strictly speaking. While fully cognizant of the wisdom that Solomon wrote about, Paul wrote something profound for all of us to learn from upon that backdrop. I'll give you a teaser principle before we jump into this key verse again, up here on the board, the time for truth. The time for affirming and defending the word of truth is always, always. The time for affirming and defending the word of truth is always. While people's attitude towards truth is seasonal, a la 2 Timothy 4.2, standing up for it is something we are commanded to do regardless of circumstances or timing. Again, the time for truth, the time for affirming and defending the word of truth is always. Seasons do change. People have an affinity, uh, apparently, for truth, and then the next day they don't. While people's attitude towards truth is seasonal, a la 2 Timothy 4.2, we'll get to that in a moment, Standing up for it is something we are commanded to do, regardless of circumstances or timing. Let's look at the verse that I referenced there again. Go to 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. Again, the context is that Paul is writing to Timothy. He's encouraging him to preach the word, regardless of the attitude towards it in the people. That he is teaching. Second Timothy four two. Some of you can relate to this. Of course, he is speaking to a pastoral situation, but the gen, the general rule here applies to all of us. Second Timothy four two. Preach the word. Be ready. We'll focus on that a little bit. Also, though, be ready in season and out of season. In season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So that was Paul's counsel for his disciple Timothy. Up here on the board from Ephestemi in the Greek, be ready to set upon, set up, to stand upon, to or be present. In context, the active voice, imperative mood, means that it is a command to be personally obeyed daily, you see. Personally obeyed, active voice, imperative mood, command to be personally obeyed daily. Be ready, regardless of season. On Thursday, the Spirit gave us food for thought using the concept. And it was just an example that carried over even from the message right after Resurrection Sunday special. The Spirit gave us food for thought using the concept of celebrating certain holidays. And we learned that we ought to be celebrating Jesus each and every day, not just on Christmas and Resurrection Sunday, not just when it's, you know, in season to celebrate Jesus, just because the world gives us sort of a, although it seems to be decreasing, a free pass to talk openly about Jesus during, you know, Easter and Christmas That's garbage. We ought to be celebrating Jesus each and every day. And if we get persecuted for it, so be it. Not just on holidays. And that was just that sort of example that we could all relate to. He then took it one step further by pointing out that we all have a lot to be grateful for. And yet, we don't often enough take pause and give thanks to God for it. You know, Allah 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. The key point of that good labor was to emphasize that while there are seasonal aspects of life, Allah Ecclesiastes 3:1, certain perspectives must persist in us, as Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4:2. So while there are seasonal aspects of life, Certain perspectives must persist in us in or out of season. And that's what Paul was getting at. And that has everything to do with our stance and our posture and our readiness to affirm or defend the word of truth. In other words, we should always be ready to make a defense of the word. In many ways, it's the great calling on our lives. think about it. Just reflect on this with me. Isn't this the attitude we are to have when we approach a conversation regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ? You bet. Same attitude. Same root of confidence and readiness to affirm and or defend the truth. Same root. Same confidence. Same attitude. Same posture. That's how Jesus himself presented it to his disciples, go to John 17, 17. John 17, verse 17. Again, when we present the gospel even, we do so with this same root of confidence, this readiness that Paul was asking Timothy to hold steadfastly to. John 17, 17 reads, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we know that the word has that supernatural ability to sanctify us and to sanctify others. So it's really the the root cause for all confidence. Verse 18, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world to be ready, to affirm And defend this truth. Why? Because it's that truth that sanctifies man. Jesus sends his sheep out into the world to spread the good news about himself. Ask yourself, how are we going to accomplish this grand goal of his if we waffle because the truth is, quote, out of season by someone else's standards? How are we going to accomplish this great work in verse 18 of John 17. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. We have purpose here, right? How are we going to accomplish his grand goal goal, if we waffle because the truth is out of season by someone else's standards? Furthermore, even within the ranks of believers, how are we going to reprove, rebuke, and exhort brothers and sisters in Christ if we lack the Constitution to stand up for the truth. I imagine some of you are like, well, I'm not that confident yet. To you I say, well then, isn't it just wonderful that you've been called personally to partake in a now 78-part series titled, The Lord is Our Confidence. I'm not that confident yet. Think of it this way then. Isn't it great that you're listening to my voice right now? Not me personally, but <laughs> this message. Isn't it wonderful that he's given you what is now come to be 78 parts on a series titled, The Lord is Our Confidence. In other words, isn't it great that the Lord is equipping you for the work of service to his glory? Like right now, Allah Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Isn't that what the Spirit's been calling out as grace over the years? Here's the principle behind that. Up here on the board, God owns our success. Dwell on that. That's the fact of the matter. You don't own your success. God owns your success. God owns our success. God never asks his children to do something without first equipping them for success by grace. Our job is to humbly submit to Him. Again, God owns our success. He never asks His children to do something without first equipping them for success by grace. Our job? Submit. It turns out that this grace is a double-edged sword though, huh? It's wonderful, for example, to know that God promises to provide us everything we need to obey His commands. However, here's the balance statement. Go to Luke twelve forty eight. Luke 12, 48. Again, God owns our success. He equips us with grace before he asks us to be successful. But as I was preparing this message, the Spirit said, make them aware that this is also a double-edged sword. For starters, it's wonderful to know that God promises to provide us everything we need before we have to obey his commands even. However, there's a balance statement, Luke 12:48. But the one who did not know and didn't what was deserved uh, and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given though, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. In other words, to whom much is given, much is required. Again, the point of the board. God owns our success. God never asks his children to do something without first equipping them for success by grace. Our job is to humbly submit to him. However, in light of the balance statement we just received from the Holy Spirit in Luke 12:48, we must also accept in humility that to whom much is given, much is required. In other words, if God gives us grace to equip us ahead of time for, say, you know, being ready to give a defense for that which we believe, then here's the, here's the secondary part. Here's the double-edged sword part. When we're called to the carpet to actually give that defense... The requirement is that we do it. You've been given the ability to succeed. Then you are now held personally responsible for that thing. Go to Hebrews 10.35. Hebrews 10.35 for some encouragement. Again, when we're called to the carpet to actually give such a defense... Because the command is to be ready. The requirement is that we do it. Hebrews 10.35 Hebrews 10.35 Therefore, Hebrews 10.35 Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. That's our calling, remember. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. How does the Bible make such Strong, convicting statements about believers in Christ. We are not to shrink back to destruction. How does the Bible make statements like, Therefore do not throw away your confidence. How does the Bible make such strong, convicting statements about believers in Christ? Because of the efficacious nature of God's grace. It's, that's the precise reason Go to an old friend, Isaiah 55:11. Isaiah 55:11. I hope you're following all this. Again, why is it that the Bible is able to make such strong, convicting statements about believers in Christ? Why is it to the point on the board even that we can say that God owns our success and he knows that? He wants us to know that. He wants us to live by grace. Why? Why does he want us to lean 100% on his grace? Because his grace is perfectly efficacious. It's perfectly effective, in other words. Isaiah 55, 11 speaks to this. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish. Not maybe, not I hope so. It shall accomplish which, that which I purpose. And shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. There's our answer. That's why the Word of God can be so strong in its language, because God trusts his own grace to have the right effect. Up here on the board, again, God owns our success. God's Word never comes up shy of its purpose. Isaiah 55 11. This means that when the word is implanted into our soul, it is guaranteed to be effective. And because of this fact, we are held personally responsible to the truth. That's Luke 12, 48. Who much is given, much is required. Again, God owns our success. God's word never comes up shy of its purpose. This means that when the word is implanted into our soul, it is guaranteed to be effective. Because of this fact, we are held personally responsible to the truth. In other words, the double-edged, this, this is that double-edged sword that I mentioned earlier. While God promises success, guarantees it even, once equipped for it by grace, he holds us personally accountable. Why? Because we have a free will and we can always turn our backs on that efficacious grace, as we would call it. For a humble person, then, this is great news. This is fantastic news. God owns my success. Awesome. You can have it all, Lord. I'll live by grace and be set free in the process. For an arrogant person, this is terrible news. Terrible news because they have to get rid of self-confidence, self-righteousness, all the little things that they continue to cling to. So you'll have to decide for yourselves. Based on your soul's reaction to what I just taught you, which camp do you fall into? The humble or the arrogant? It's a double-edged sword. On Thursday, the Spirit gave us an old friend from January of 2018, quite a ways back now, on this topic up here on the board, the general truth about demands. The Bible is chock full of demands that are literally impossible for man to obey without the help of the one making them. While this seems paradoxical, it is nothing less than God's grace. God is merely looking for willingness and humility in a man. That's the general truth about demands. The Bible's chock full of demands that are literally impossible. Say, how could I ever do that? By the grace of God. That's the whole point. God wants you to realize that you cannot do it. God wants you to realize that it's by faith alone that you're able to do this thing. By grace through faith, in other words. The Bible's chock full of commands like that, that. Literally impossible for us to obey without the help of the one making them. While it seems paradoxical, it is nothing less than God's grace. It puts God's grace on full display, does it not? Of course. God's merely looking for willingness and humility in a man. He'll, he'll, do the, he'll do the rest. The Spirit also gave us another old friend from August of 2018, up here in the board, by grace. When God demands something of us, He does so in light of His ever-present grace. He knows, sometimes we forget, that it is impossible for mere vessels of mercy, Romans 9.23, to bear fruit worthy of His glory by themselves. So, He enables us. He's motivated, in other words, he owns our success. The good news is that God's grace is all we ever need to depend upon in order to be pleasing to him. Yes, it's a double-edged sword. But let me ask you this though. Okay, so it's a double-edged sword. What's the alternative? I mean, what if we start thinking You know, that that double-edged sword, I don't know, it cuts too deep for our liking. We just don't like it. You know, I don't like being held responsible. I don't know, whatever the problem is, right? What if we start thinking that this double-edged sword cuts too deep for our liking? Are you going to reject God's grace, effectively ejecting yourself from God's economy, and adopt creature credit as your preferred form of currency? Are you going to walk right back into the evil economy the Lord delivered you from when he redeemed you out of the slave market of sin? If that's the alternative, it sounds like a really bad idea, just saying. So here's some good perspective based on biblical evidence. Up here on the board, the blessing of obedience. When we obey God, we are blessed. When he says, be ready. When he says, receive my grace, let me do the work, we're blessed. That's what obedience looks like. Remember, we live in the sphere of obedience. Don't think of obedience religiously like, oh, what's pastor talking about right now? Am I supposed to obey this and this line? No, this is a mindset. Obedience is a mindset. When he says, be ready, it's implied that if we're going to be ready to follow a command that we're obedient not just to the command, but also to the command to receive his grace in humility. When we obey God, we are blessed, not just because it is pleasing to him, because it is, but also that our lives are oriented to his perfect plan. Obedience has the effect of reducing the friction between our conscience and our lifestyles. In other words, when you get out of sync or disoriented with God because you're becoming disobedient you lose your blessings and when you lose your blessings you get irritable right your conscience starts haunting you and it doesn't leave you alone uh, that that is the effect of, of of returning to obedience that those things are mitigated so let's reflect for a moment just to be just to be fair to ourselves right it's because in a perfect world, We'd be perfectly obedient. To be fair, are we perfectly obedient children? Do I really need to ask that question? I mean, the answer is a resounding no. Do you know who knows this about you? Your creator does. The same person who saved you. So, while you can't necessarily take what the Spirit's saying, (laughs) excuse me, with a grain of salt, as they say, you mustn't allow yourself to become exasperated either to the point where you just, you know, throw in the towel. So we have to be fair to ourselves. Even, I mean, there's a reason why God's patience is on full display as well, and that he knew all of this before he even saved us. We're all going to fail at obedience because nobody's perfect. So, what's an analogy to this? What, what, do you say, um, what do you say to a person who's learning to ride a horse when they fall off? The, the rule of thumb is hurry up and get back on. The same goes in life, my friends. If you fail, then just get right back in the saddle. There's always tomorrow. If God wakes you up in the morning, then he apparently has faith in his own grace. Imagine that. He has faith in his own grace to put you back into the saddle for another go around. Imagine that. Go to Lamentations 3.22. Lamentations 3 verse 22. If you fail, then there's always tomorrow. None of us are perfectly obedient. None of us are always being ready. None of us are perfect at any of this. There's always tomorrow, so we fail. Limitations 3.22, for the encouragement's sake. Limitations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. How's that in amplifying the fact that God owns our success. How about that? God says, you know what? I, I'll take ownership over your success. I will do, I will, every morning, my faithfulness is renewed. How about that? That's how committed I am to your success because I own it. I hope you see that. Couple that passage, Lamentation three twenty-two to 23, with this one up here on the board, Deuteronomy 31, 6, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. How's that for encouragement, huh? He's never going to leave you. He's already decided that you're his, the Lord has decided to marry you. You are his, a member of his bride. He's never going to divorce you. He's never going to turn his back on you. He already knew when he was on the cross, he paid for all your sins. He paid for all your disobedience. You see it? How's that for encouragement? How about this? Here's some more. Go to Psalm 103, 13. Psalm 103, verse 13. Again, Deuteronomy 31, 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Every morning, his faithfulness is renewed. So encouraging. How about Psalm 103:13? As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Just to come full circle again on the verse that instigated all of this, up here on the board, 2 Timothy 4.2, I'll give you the Amplified this time. Preach the word as an official messenger. Be ready, that's the command. Be ready when the time is right, and even when it is not. Keep your sense of urgency, whether the opportunity seems favorable or unfavorable, whether convenient or inconvenient, whether welcome or unwelcome. Correct those who err in doctrine or behavior, Warn those who sin. Exhort and encourage those who are growing towards spiritual maturity with inexhaustible patience and faithful teaching. Be ready. It takes a... Think about this. uh, It takes a certain spiritual moxie to do this, right? To to be ready in season and out of season. It takes a moxie, if you want to say. We might... We might as well just use the language the Bible uses, the same language the Spirit used when he inspired the title of this series. It takes a certain confidence to be ready this way, in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort. It takes a certain confidence to do this thing. It's true. It does require a certain confidence to stand up for the truth when everyone around you is against it. You know, when it's out of season, as Paul would say. The question then that we pondered last time is this up here on the board. Where fundamentally do we derive our confidence from in our lives? Where fundamentally do we derive our confidence from in our lives? Just another angle into the same rosebush, folks. It's another angle. We carve this angle into two options we have two options to choose from. I gave them to you last time in terms of economies. If you have respect for the world's economy, you invest your resources into compiling creature credit so that you can effectively trade with others in that economy. However, if you have respect for God's economy, You invest your resources in receiving grace so that you can function with others in his economy those are your two options there's really just two economies is it going to be creature credit as the currency or is it going to be grace is it going to be the world's economy or is it going to be God's economy the truth is that God has given us a free will to choose and as most of you will attest by now Even after salvation, we can wander into the wrong economy. We can be seduced into that economy because the world lies to us and says, look at the return on investment here, huh? Don't spend your time listening to a message from that bald dude. Spend your time with us. You're going to get way more out of your experience in the world than you will from that hour listening to that message. That's how you're seduced, you see, you're seduced into the world's economy and you invest your your time and your energy and often your finances even into that economy to purchase, if you would, creature credit along the way. God gives us a free will to choose. The Bible tells us to choose wisely, doesn't it? Look up here as a baseline principle in the Bible, Deuteronomy 30 verse 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death the blessing and the curse so choose life in order that you may live live that life that as we as we learned of uh, in the resurrection sunday message live that resurrection life be filled up with it my friends uh, be overwhelmed let your cup be filled to the brim with God's grace. God gives us a choice. Do we respect him or Satan? Do we listen to the word of truth or the world of lies? Do we do we join forces with our Lord or forces with God's enemies? The question is a very simple one, and this is that forked path that Angle into the rosebush I alluded to earlier. Whom do we fear? Whom do we fear? Where do we derive our confidence from? That was the question on the table, right? Where fundamentally do we derive our confidence from? Well, we derive it from the same area of respect and fear. Let's let's get some perspective from Jesus's uh, from Jesus on this, shall we? Go to Matthew. 10 verse 16 again whom do we fear that's the question now whom do we fear where are our priorities Uh, whose economy are we going to partake in matthew 10 16 because the fruit of one is very different than the fruit of another hopefully you see the connective tissue matthew 10 verse 16 jesus said behold I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you, In that hour, what you are to say. Doesn't that just echo uh, of what we just learned about God giving you grace before you need it? In other words, the command was to be ready in season and out of season. But I will give you grace first. Look at verse 19. This is literally it. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say. For it will be given to you in that hour, what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. Do not Fear them. Look at the point of the board. Whom do we fear? Jesus said, do not fear them. Don't fear the ones in the world economy, in other words. Don't worry about your reputation. Don't worry about investing in that economy of creature credit that's literally wrought with evil. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear proclaim on the upon the housetops. verse 28 do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You see fear has a uh, fear in the biblical sense this idea of respect for God even that's the driving factor that's the answer to that question. Where fundamentally do we derive our confidence from? Well, it matters uh, which economy, which currency we fear not having. You see, where do we put our stake in life? Where are our priorities? What is it that we fear? Well, Jesus Christ laid it right on the line. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Are you confident about that? But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are you confident about that? Nonetheless, we are given a choice as to which economy we will function in, even experientially. So again, the question on the board is very simple. Whom do we fear? So this brings us back, all the way back to this wrap-up passage that we ended with On Thursday I even presented it as sort of a capstone of the entire series Proverbs 14 26 to 27 in the Amplified in the reverent fear of the Lord there is strong confidence I just taught you that where fundamentally do we get our confidence whom do we fear in the reverent fear of the Lord there is strong confidence there's your answer and his children will always have a place of refuge The reverent fear of the Lord that leads to obedience and worship is a fountain of life. A fountain of life so that one may avoid the snares of death. One may stay out of the world's economy, in other words. As I mentioned last time, this passage is like a summary of so much of what we've learned over the past 78 parts of this series. Just looking back on it, you know, big picture... Why seventy-eight parts? I mean, this has to rank in terms of the most parts we've ever, the most parts of a series we've ever been given. The topic: the Lord is our confidence. The reason the Spirit didn't just take us here to this particular passage and on part one of the series is simple. Listen up. Let me grab a drink of water here. The reason the Spirit didn't take us here on part one of this series is simple. You ready? You humble? You ready to receive His grace? Here it is. We are far too arrogant, too ignorant. We were, I should say, far too arrogant, too ignorant, too whatever, that we wouldn't have received it the way we are in this moment <clears throat> looking back we needed in hindsight we needed to be knocked down a few pegs in order to be lifted back up we needed to be knocked down a few pegs in order to be lifted back up and if you're humble you've been you've allowed him to knock you down because that's his way We needed our arrogant human fleshes to be set back on their heels so that God could be glorified. We needed the confidence we derived in self to be smashed so that God could impart to us true confidence. That should actually sound familiar. So much of why it's taken us so long to get to this place, you know, part 78, in our studies is captured in James 4. Go to James 4, 3 with me. James 4, 3. James 4, verse 3. So much of what, why it's taken so long. Why 78 parts? I mean, if we could have just gone to Proverbs 14, 26 to 27, and, you know, part one, we could have just moved on. Obviously, we're way too arrogant. We weren't ready. James speaks to this whole thing. James 4, verse 3. This is why. You ask and do not receive. Because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Some of you, you know, to me, I don't want to digress, this isn't in my notes, but one of the ugliest dang things I could ever see is somebody, somebody who is cocky even, because they're a Christian. Those things, are they're antithetical, right? But the person who says, oh, I'm... I'm a Christian. And they're, they're arrogant about it. That's, that's one of the most ugly things you can possibly ever see. It literally is the exact opposite of the beauty that is Jesus Christ. Anyways, I'm no, no, not sure what made me think of that, but uh, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. I know what it was, because people want to be confident. They learn the Word of God so they can have self-confidence. Right, So they can be puffed up and they walk around with their chest out belittling people that don't know as much of the Word of God, let's say. Can't memorize as much scripture. Can't point back to a decade of learning the Word. It's awful. It's disgusting. It's grotesque. It's ugly. Again, James 4.3. Ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That's why you didn't give it to us in the beginning, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Some of you are just beginning to receive the confidence you originally desired, right? I mean, which one of you is willing to say that upon entering this series in part one, this is way back in June of last year, which one of you is willing to say that upon entering this series in part one, that you didn't want more confidence? Who's going to say that? Right. And yet it takes 78 parts for you to finally begin receiving it. Why? Because way back in June of 2008, excuse me, 2019, when we began the series, you weren't ready. That's why you were still asking with wrong motives. And what did James write on this? Again, look at verse three. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In other words, if you choose to purchase currency in the world's economy, you've just made yourself an enemy of God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously seeks, jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He has the command, submit therefore to God. In other words, invest in his economy, into his grace. Let him own your success Verse 7, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I love this part, verse 9, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. All these things, these so-called blessings you get from the world you know, the return on investment is there to allude to that little scenario I laid out earlier. Stay with us, invest in us, forget, you know, skip out on Bible class. Don't do that. You'll get way more out of spending time with me. Well, you know, so says the person from the world. Let all that joy and that laughter that you so-called receive in those moments, let be miserable. And mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Verse 10 Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So you had to be humbled for what is now, what, 78 parts apparently, before the Spirit could begin giving you straight talk about the confidence, about confidence in the Lord. So there's your answer. Hence our principle from last time. Appear on the board, arrogance and fear of the Lord are antithetical. Please spend some time in the privacy of your own souls to dwell on this principle. Arrogance and fear of the Lord are antithetical. So before we close, let me give you our anchor passage one last time Proverbs 14, 26 to 27 in the Amplified. In the reverent fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. And his children will always have a place of refuge. The reverent fear of the Lord that leads to obedience and worship is a fountain of life so that one may avoid the snares of death. I'll leave you with this. Here's a little connective tissue to help you with your reflective, critical thinking on all of this. If arrogance and fear of the Lord are antithetical... And the fear of the Lord is the source of strong confidence. What do you think arrogance does to confidence? Again, if arrogance and fear of the Lord are antithetical, and the fear of the Lord is a source of strong confidence, what do you think arrogance does to confidence? I'll leave you with that. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this message, this word of truth. Father, thank you for giving us holy scripture. Thank you for inspiring in the first place that we may turn to it whenever we want, Father, to be encouraged by it, to be edified by it, to be set free by it, Father. Thank you so much for your patience and your love, Father. We do just ask for your blessings as we take these things back to the privacy of our own souls, back to our families, and then your will be done out to a world that needs it so desperately. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen.